welcome to the Practice Podcast, conversations probing the nature of practice. I'm your host, Dave Fearon, co-author with Peter Vale of the digital book on practice as a way of being. Find it at mylibrary.world. Now to our show. My son Dave and his wife came up from Baltimore to spend Christmas week with us. And we took a moment, Dave and I, to record another episode of the Practice Podcast with a further focus on the deeply internal nature of social inaction and how it connects to practice, particularly the practice of conversation. So this recording was done with um, an external recorder, not on Zoom, as, as, have, as have most of the others. So the sound will be a little different, but the content, the weaving of thought that particularly Dave does in this episode is well worth perking up the listening ears for this new episode. And Happy New Year, everyone. Welcome to a new conversation with Dave and Dad. Social inaction is our question. Practice is our answer. No, it isn't. <laughs> Practice is definitely woven into our concern and interest in social inaction. And so over the last uh, 18 podcast date, over the 200 and nearly 50 that we've done, uh, we've been pursuing the question. And if we get closer to an answer today, it'll be because you've done some more homework. And what have you been studying in that homework that you're bringing to us today? Today, uh, we'll, we'll start out with this question, which is uh, captured by uh, this excerpt from I Heart Huckabees with Lily Tallman and Jason Swartz having a little conversation. Have you ever transcended space and time? Yes. No. Uh, time, not space. No, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and that's what we're going to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> because I've had one more little uh, episode for our discussion of George Herbert Mead, the uh, pragmatist philosopher, uh, philosopher who um, did most of his uh, writing during the uh, early 20th century. And this was... Uh, I, I would say he he had a one of his themes in addition to the nature of the act and social interaction and social group life was uh, some um, explorations of what is the nature of time and uh, what's and had a whole philosophy of time that he was uh, developing um, I, I would say through a little bit in his early years but towards um, his uh, latter years in the um, uh, late 20s and then right before he died in um, I believe 1931 he was uh, doing a, lectures and had some um, essays and some incomplete articles that were uh, um, found uh, some of them uh, developed post posthumously um, as a book called um, The Philosophy of the Present. Ah. And um, I think it's uh, another interesting um, link between what we've been talking about with the 
in action perspective overall, um, mm -hmm. which is a way of uh, looking at what we've been calling practice <clears throat> embedded in real, uh, real interaction with the world and with um, other people in particular. That's right. Um, but uh, there's a couple of neat um, ways of connecting this, even to modern physics, um, a book that um, I uh, start, picked up a while ago, uh, recommended on one of the several pod, uh, uh, YouTubes and, and podcasts that I've been listening to, um, a book by Carlo uh, Rovelli, who's a physicist um, in Italy. He wrote a number of books, um, one of which was a, a, a nice book called The Order of Time, in which he looks at um, the nature of time and space um, and comes up with some interesting ideas which, oddly enough, um, connect fairly well with what um, George Herbert Mead was uh, working on. Um, and at that time, uh, uh, Einstein had already uh, completed his um, you know, initial seminal papers on um, time and relativity, and mm -hmm. so that was a big discussion in the late, you know, by the late uh, 1920s, as was um, the early models of quantum physics. Um, a lot so, happening, right? Yeah, so it was a very uh, interesting time in particular where, you know, the old Newtonian ideas of space and time um, and energy um, really were under question, and so Mead approached it um, largely, he approached it as kind of a question of, of philosophy and the nature of empiricism when you have these major um, scientific uh, um, paradigm shifts where people are, are trying to kind of hold what seems like almost irrational uh, or, or notions about time and space that just aren't at all like a, a rational experience of everyday time and, and objects, and, and especially when you get into quantum indeterminacy and, and then um, relativity of time that Einstein was coming up with. And so what does this say about kind of the philosophy of science? But, but he also kind of ventured a little bit into um, uh, what, it, what maybe time and space may be um, as experience, but also maybe a bit, bit beyond that into what what might be the nature of, of time and space. Hmm. And, um, and, and in that discussion, um, he was working with a, um, a contemporary of his, um, a, little, uh, a little bit younger, um, um, the philosopher, I'll make sure I, I have his, his full name right, Alfred North Whitehead. Oh, yeah. Who... Um, I'm mentioning partly because um, the people in doing this in action kind of emergent complexity research are, are very much into Alfred North Whitehead because he um, wrote a couple of uh, very important um, works on um, process, what's called, I guess we could call it a, a process uh, philosophy process-based philosophy that's very compatible with what we've been saying about in action and, right. and um, um, those dynamics and, and evolution um, and um, what, you know, pe people are doing with contemporary cognitive psychology and neuroscience that we talked about with, with um, uh, 
you know, the brain, predictive processing of the brain, the free energy principle of entropy, all of that was, was found to be fairly compatible with, uh, with um, Whitehead. But as Whitehead was also working with um, some of these emerging ideas of trying to figure out relativity and um, uh, you know, quantum theory, what all that means, um, hmm. he, he tended to settle on I, I might be getting this wrong, I won't say too much about it, but he, he was sort of leaning towards a notion of time, for example, that was maybe had a more permanence, that, that he kind of wanted to keep hold of the idea of a fundamental time and maybe even something fundamental underlying objects mm. and their permanency. Um, that um, Mead was um, uh, starting to critique, he had some interesting critiques of that, which I won't go too much into that because I'm not sure I understand Whitehead's positions all that well. But it's just interesting that in the type of critiques Mead was developing right up to the time of his death, um, though the, the direction of those critiques hold up very well with current current models of physics, especially this um, Rovelli's approach. Wow. I got to tell you two things quickly. Um, Peter wrote a paper called... Uh, Process Wisdom for a New Age, uh, sometime back in the 70s or early 80s. And uh, he had been studying Whitehead. Oh, yeah. So our interest in practice and social action was somewhat predicated on Peter's understanding of uh, the importance of process. So it puts us right back into the time-space question. So that's cool. Very yeah, cool. And I think... Um, those uh, who really get into Whitehead, he's one of these philosophers who likes to kind of come up with his own terms, and it really yeah. takes a lot of deep study yeah. to even understand what he's talking about. Whereas Mead, I mean, Mead's writing is, is um, you know, you have to kind of get through that, uh, um, you know, the the, philosoph the philosopher's language, and, and especially in this philosophy, the present book, um, it's not quite as... Um, you know, coherently written, but his ideas are, are, as I've been trying to convey them, are, are relatively easy to grasp. So I think we can kind of okay have yes. a new context that might help us teach so. teach your old man some new tricks. <laughs> so, um, so I part of what we're discussing will depend on on picking up our um, prior. Uh, couple of episodes on um, Mead and social interaction and especially um, our discussion of the philosophy of the act um, because the experience of time, um, our sense of present, of past and of future are very much tied into the nature of um, acts and, and the, the construction of acts as a um, as an ongoing process that really makes you know the background of, of reality into something that's meaningful, has things in it, objects. We act towards things, and then with the um, with humans, um, with a with the social interaction, is entire extra layers of, of abstraction that gives us kind of the conversing symbolic sense of time and space and objects and self and other. And um, so what, one of the things that implies for time is what, what is the present? What is it? What is this sense of now? Does the sense of now rely on 
the existence of a clock, you know, everyone having the same clock, everyone having the same time, um, or is, are, you know, so that, we, you know, we're able to sync our actions because we, we the two, two of us interacting have the same fixed referral that's out there. Yeah. That, that is actually kind of governing our, our course of action in that sense. And Mead, Mead doesn't think this so much is necessary. He, he talks about the present being specious present. Specious in that if we think about what is our experience right now, it's kind of doubtful. It's kind of, you know, isn't even there. So we've been binge watching the Rockford Files uh, this <laughs> week. This is the right before uh, New Year's where where we um, have some time to binge watch a few things. And, and the classic 70s show, The Rockford Files, always ends with that freeze frame with with James Garner with a bemused expression. That's right. Oh, no. It's <laughs> after that, that, little, that yeah. little hook at the end where um, where uh, he thought yeah. he was making money as a detective and then it's pulled out from under him. So, But if you think of that, if there really were a freeze frame, what... What would would there really be an experience? Would there be anything there to ah. without that that ongoing motion? So it's yeah, a real good question. Yeah. So so really, any moment of now is kind of an illusion in a way. It's kind of that you know you'll you, if you had a if you could stop time, you'd you'd get this set of relationships between the molecules that you're interacting with and that are going on in your brain. Um, but there's still this need of um, processing, an ongoing processing time, even within the brain. Things take take time, but more than that, they're ordered in a very particular way. Um, and we had talked in the past about um, the older notion of like the stimulus and response models of behaviorism that Mead was arguing against. Yeah. Where um, that had a much more of a me- mechanistic model that that would fit with the older kind of Newtonian notions of, of time, where mm-hmm. you know the outside world is presenting um, the conditions and and triggering things in the brain. You're con- you're connecting your 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 memories and spitting out a behavior. Um, but the whole thing about uh, Mead's uh, definition of the act was one where something's being built up, um, and from the inside out. Yeah, from the inside out, with a heavy uh, emphasis on prediction. So, um, which is again compatible with with current uh, kind of an action based notions of, of neuroscience and, and action, where what we're largely doing is is. Uh, building up through our learning a world in which we um, can, as accurately as possible, predict what's going to happen next. So there's nothing in the real future there that's informing us, but we're trying very hard to predict a future based on what is at least real from our past and has kind of laid down laid down that, that foundation that we can use again. But it's really in the act that you have this construction of time and space, huh. and that's instantaneous. I mean, if we're talking time, well, it's it's a you're building up, but when, and whenever you pay attention to that, is that the, a, that 
awareness of the act, or yeah, it's it's the accomplishment of the moment. But if you you know some of the better neurophysiology in, um, instruments are starting to record, how long does that actually take? And it does take some milliseconds. Yeah, um, you never quite you know it, it's it's a uh, we can kind of tell how fast it is if there's a ball coming towards your head. We can duck. We can duck if you see it. So it's it's at least uh, um, somewhere around that timing. But and then but then if you and if you look at brain scans, you'll see these patterns of firing that kind of start from um, a, a small area and spread out and then can collapse back again into other areas. So mm-hmm. there's this there's um, and that happens um, within within a second. But there's still this this clear kind of visual sense of, of processing that has to go on. Mm-hmm. And um, and so if we quickly kind of go over what um, Mead's philosophy of the act um, com- consisted of, um, you can kind of see the components for this. So so he has, um, if you think of, it, it, it's kind of a layered thing where, where we're kind of going, we're doing a number of our actions um, that are kind of in the background um, like you're driving a car and you're not paying attention to um, everything in the scene, but your muscles are kind of doing their own, um, your muscles and perception are doing kind of their own um, less uh, organized layer of, of prediction to keep you on the road. Mm-hmm. And those are sort of like mini acts, but the more the conscious act are the ones where you have an impulse, and it's usually an emotion-based one, where... Um, usually specifically where the prediction, something the prediction has gone wrong. Yeah, like a car slowing fast yeah. in front of you, things like that. Yeah, and you have to then quickly reorganize the expectations um, and um, come up with uh, what is the thing in the environment that now matters. And in doing so, um, this is this is going from the impulse stage to the um, perception stage. Um, but Mead has tied in with perception an ongoing kind of manipulation stage. Manipulation is where you're kind of doing something with the world, doing something about that uh, impulse. Mm-hmm. So if it were, um, um, you know, if you had to, if some if someone were about to hit you with a with a bag or something, and you had to um, push it aside before it hits you with your hand, the the there's a sequence of um, perceiving where the thing is, um, having your muscles anticipate where it's going to be in the future, um, and with and then gradually that um, modeling of the distant, the, of the experience that's both distant in time and space, um, then luckily will if you if you're good will connect so that you can brush brush aside the thing that's about the to hit you, um, and then if you succeed, that's kind of the consummation phase where you can then evaluate, and maybe that becomes the impulse for further actions. Like, why'd you why'd you try to hit me with your handbag? <laughs> um, so, but uh, he really kind of gets into what is what does that imply for for the nature of time, or what's what's kind of the real the real experience of of temporality on that basis um, and uh, you know and part of that is that that act then is starting to to 
pull out its own relevance, what it is, what's, what it is that's relevant in that moment in the scene and, and, and from the um, background of, of, you know, light and shapes and things, you get something that's these emergent objects, objects that have meaning and me defines meaning again as the tendency to act or the, or the tendencies of what could ha happen next. So, so the meaning of objects are very much this predictive um, basis based on, on um, learning in the past. So you'd have to identify that thing coming at you as either a handbag or something that you don't know it's a handbag, you think it's a stick or... Yeah, you know, whatever it is at first, it's kind of a blur of motion yeah. and, and then it, the rest of your brain starts to put together its components yeah. um, as it gets closer, but then it's really as it... Um, it may even be after you deflected it that it kind of congeals into what we would call, hey, that's a handbag, what's yeah. that being swung at me for? Yeah, <laughs> and you're already in that same instance, wondering why the bag's being slugged, why you're being slugged in the first place. Well, that might come later. That might okay. come afterwards. I mean, right now, it's just get, yeah. save yourself from getting slugged by So the you have bag. this kind of um, semi-first-level thinking where it's like, yeah. okay, this, you know, almost the reflex level, but yeah. it's still this dynamics of the act. And then, at that point, after that, then you can do this abstraction that, especially that humans are able to do well, and Mead actually does refer to this taking the role of the other uh, as essential to that pro product project. Um, um, and it's one uh, kind of an interesting way of thinking of it is that in, in perhaps in the evolution of that skill, we first had to learn to take the role of social others, mm -hmm. um, put ourselves in the place of of what's what some social other would be doing with that object, and even perhaps getting more towards that symbolic representation of what those meaningful objects are, to help then coordinate the rest of our brain at more of its reflex level of, of um, organizing uh, time and space. Um, I'll, I'll kind of come back to that later, but it's... It's interesting. Yeah, but he really... And this is fairly, certainly unique for his time, and <clears throat> still you don't see a lot in, in, in cognition, is that this, this um, part of building up the, the um, space-time of events includes this imaginative uh, putting yourself in the place of uh, both social others and not simply um, you know, the mechanics of physics. Right. Um, and that, that actually gets gets um, embedded into how we we do um, um, interact with non-living objects. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, so there's this, this little bit of a social, even in, in, in mundane acts that don't necessarily involve other, other people or animals. So, uh, so this is, um, so where does this idea of the species present come in? Um, he, uh, he uses some interesting distinctions between um, the emergence of uh, objects in space uh, within the act as kind of moving from a sense of spaceless time into 
timeless space. And this kind of this is kind of a sense of the the emergence of a meaningful object within the act into experience. And and huh. so the idea of um, spaceless time is that in in our kind of our kind of the background experience. Um, let's say we're we're moving towards sitting down in a chair. Mm-hmm. Um, you are moving, you, you have sort of an, an initial act-based um, uh, goal to sit in the chair, but much of that is going to be in the background where your actual brain is processing a cha- the changing picture of the chair itself. So as you're moving towards it, the actual, you know, photons and shadows and things coming, bouncing off the chair are giving your brain and a, a, a sequence of, of changes. The, the angle of the, of the angles change, the color and shadows change, and your brain is, if your brain weren't able to tie it together, it would just be this blurred, me, this blurry mess. Which um, you, you're not likely to sit on a yeah, blurry mess. <laughs> and, it, it's, and it's in the, and, and next to it are, are other um, colors and changes and shifting things of the, within the room, mm-hmm. all of that has to be systematically ignored while you're making something special about all the, all the changes that are then given this object meaning as the chair in which I will sit. Now, as you're approaching the chair, this is occurring over time. Um, so something is stitching together this this um, time, this time, kind of vague duration of shifting events into um, what is sustained as a shape and an object, the chairness. So, in, in Mead says, in this sense, we're abstracting from a time-based blurring of events, a timeless or a, a time uh, something that's somewhat distinct from time being. The chair. This is the same chair I saw on one side of the room. It will be the same chair that I sit in once I get to it. Mm-hmm. And all of that being, um, and so that's the sense of shifting from a, a time, a, a shapeless background into a timeless space where objects are concerned. And, and this is our, and so as we experience the present, um, a lot of it is this in this uh, confirmation of expectations um, where we can mostly focus on what's relevant to an action, ignoring everything else, and it gives us a sense of um, permanent things or a little bit more permanence of things um, outside of their changing nature in time. And if you really think about how, how, how is their nature changing, if you get right down to it, it's just clouds of of atoms and molecules that happen to be <laughs> yeah. uh, consistently staying together. Um, uh, most, you know, at that level, we can certainly ignore things. It's, it becomes a blurred background. But um, we do also want to be ready for contingency. So as we're sitting in a chair, we sit down, we feel something uh, small and hard underneath of us. It's like, uh-oh, there's impulse. What is that? And 
as you explore a little bit more with a new act, you find, oh, that was my glasses. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> but they didn't become glasses. They didn't come extruded into space until you kind of started um, uh, turning that into a new act. Um, huh. So, um, so it's it's uh, so it's just it's just a, a, a kind of a interesting way of thinking of of um, time and space in that in that psychology way. Um, you know, maybe that doesn't seem all that profound in a sense, but it is at least um, reminding us that uh, even time and space are, are constructs um, as we experience them and to a large degree uh, social constructs ones where right. something like what are glasses what are what yeah. are they uh, they can be seamlessly integrated into yeah. the the acts which me said wouldn't necessarily involve thinking so thinking occurs uh, you know is Sitting in the chair doesn't necessarily involve much thinking once you've kind of prepared and you know that the chair is still going to be there when you land. But the thinking about what? About the, the about glasses. Figuring out what this thing is occurs when you sit on it. Right. And then from there, it's, it's easy for the, the, our ability to have symbolic uh, um, conceptions about it. Yeah. Um, you know, seamlessly uh, be... Um, interacting with those experiences and figuring yeah. out oh, who's are those my glasses whose glasses are I was going to say it, it's, to them? It's, that's <laughs> a whole other social yeah. issue if they're not your glasses yeah. if you find out that they're your 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 wife's glasses yeah so uh, now I have to ask though um, and maybe you're coming to it and that is I get the time and I but place I don't quite get yet other than is that the location of the chair. And, and all that. but what what is place well place would be just um, within the same um, well probably in our in our experience of the present uh, we experience place and location um, it may seem to have more relevance than time at that moment so yeah. then we're kind of as we're focusing on on objects, we're focusing on where they are in space. Okay, I and, get it. But it's that extension of the object over time, in which time is kind of faded into a little bit into the background until mm -hmm. it becomes an object. So, so we expect, um, you know, if we see a car coming, we expect it. We kind of start to calculate without our realizing it how fast. The car ought to be coming towards us, mm -hmm. um, but then maybe it slows down in in a way. So we would then, at that point, um, in addition to the the location of the car in space and its change in space coming towards us, we then start making an object of time or, or duration, and maybe maybe start ah, thinking, so and then discussing it. An eighth of a second. Why, what's he slowing down for? You know that yeah, kind of What's thing. up ahead? Yeah. yeah. What's What's in the road? He, well, he just stopped suddenly. That yeah. That was a That was an impulse around duration that we then have to figure out. Right. And in that sense, time becomes just another symbolic object. Yeah. Um, oh, I get it now. That's That's interesting. That's yeah. Really, you said psychology is, is where Mead was coming from. Um, 
well, what are there other dimensions like physics that could explain? Yeah, that's where um, I think we are at a good uh, point of jumping into that because um, you know Mead was was uh, working through these ideas, but then when you have something like Einstein's uh, uh, models of relativity, um, relativity presented some you know, to initially to science, scientists, something that didn't seem at all like it fit our everyday experience of time. No, no, no. And, in, and I think what Mead realized is that it, what he may have found interesting is that it didn't need to fit that experience of time. So if you really look at one of the cool things in this Rebelli book uh, goes, goes into that, about Einstein, what Einstein felt found with relativity, that, that the, 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 that time, actual time, how long something takes, is, is completely dependent on uh, its motion and, uh, I'm probably getting this wrong, its, mo its motion, its position in relation to um, sources of mass or gravity mm -hmm. in particular, so that um, uh, uh, the planet, um, which is a big mass of gravity, actually curves time. Yeah, this is the notion of space-time, how you have to have the two together, and they're defined by their relationship the, of, of what's locally um, the, the amount of mass in relation to energy or something like that. So, so the the main sense is that time is very much a local phenomenon, meaning that literally, as we stand up, time. I hope I'm getting this right. Time is faster for our head than it is for our feet. <laughs> uh, yeah. I think it's faster. It might be slower. I'm not getting that wrong. But in any case, it's different. And there are actually uh, now clocks that, you, that, are, that are sensitive enough to, to tell the difference between the head and the feet or elevation and time because the closer you are to the mass central, center of Earth, um, time goes I think it goes slower. So one one interesting thing was when they were building GPS satellites. Yeah. Um, the engineers had to argue with their managers because the managers were saying, "Why, why did you? Why are we spending money to put clocks into these things?" And they had to explain, "Well, because Einstein shows that the satellites' clocks are going to be different than the clocks on the surface." And sure. you have to make those calculations. Yeah. And it's not like the clocks Otherwise, get off. Otherwise, it'll all be off. Yeah. It's literally time is different. Time itself. So clocks clocks out in space are, are running at a different speed. It's not because they're broken, because time itself is different. So, I never knew that. It yeah. makes sense. So, you know, Mead was, Mead was, you know, these ideas were coming out in the late 20s and 30s, and Mead was dealing with them. One, one way he approached them was to say, well, um, is, does the reality of this matter to our understanding of action? And, and he kind of uh, treated it initially as, well, in a way, it's, it's perspectives. So the only way for this to matter is that it matters within conversations. Yeah. Because it's so abstract. It really is only something you can talk about. Yeah. But what is it that we experience? Um, well, we we 
we don't experience the time differences between our head and our feet, as far as we know, unless that's why we lay down when we sleep, <laughs> so that yeah. everybody can sort sort itself out. But um, the uh, um, what's interesting is how all of that is so blurred and abstracted, and. Um, one of the ways um, that this Carlo Rovelli approached time, the nature of time, was kind of along these, these lines um, to really uh, take into account that there is, no, there is no universal time. There's no universal time in the neighborhood. God does not have a clock. Every, every, everywhere in the universe, time is, is local. And... Huh. And he even, I'll talk a little bit about how maybe there's something there at, at the sub-quantum level, time itself may not even be there in a real sense. There's something else going on. But so we, we, need, we need time as, as social beings. To, we need as thinking human. We need time. Yeah, humans have time. So we, we time. in a sense, invent it then. It, or inherit the idea. Well, we well, we have to accommodate. We have to accommodate something that um, uh, that luckily we don't have to worry about because it does emerge at the macro level as soon as you have atoms. Right. As soon as there are atoms uh, in in interaction, um, there is at least a, a something that could be called time. Um, but one, one interesting aspect that does kind of connect to what we've been talking about with um, um, an action theory is, is, the, is how thermodynamics at this macro level are very essential to the emergence of time. Hmm. We've been talking about thermodynamics in terms of entropy, right. and that living systems have to export entropy in order to stay alive, they're basically what they're basically doing is is um, taking things that are in a low entropy state, which means they have a more unified distribution of of energy or other configurations that can be used to do work. Mm-hmm. And in doing so, entropy goes from higher to lower. And lower entropy is kind of this chaos diffusion in which there isn't an ability to work. So animals eat food because the food for them is in a higher entropy state. The the molecular bonds of glucose, when broken apart, release energy that can be used to keep a biological system going. And then they export, but they can't keep the, the refuse of those sugars in them. They have to excrete some of it. Right, and so that that is a, 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 a in a broad way exporting entropy, so it doesn't accumulate within the system and disrupt it until such times as those disruptions can't be sustained in the animal and the in the systems that sustain the animal break apart and the animal dies. Yeah, this accounts for um, any living system. We talked about it before as as. Um, the measure of entropy being what Carl Friston calls a free energy distribution, which could also be framed in terms of information, but I, I won't, I don't have to deal with that now. Yeah. Um, take this further. What's what is then a rock? How does a rock exist? Or let's say a pile of wood. A pile of wood isn't isn't in itself 
living anymore, but its carbon bonds are, are very persistent and strong. Um, so, but they are in um, somewhat of a lower entropy state in relation to, to fire, but you set fire to the wood and that interaction releases um, the carbon bonds of the wood pile and then you have something that's gone to a high entropy state because one thing about that is it's irreversible. Any, any move from low to high entropy is, is irreversible. The wood cannot, the, fi the burnt wood cannot be returned to, its, to the logs. No. Even in an infinite universe of random interaction, nothing will put, the, put those um, uh, molecules back into the, the log, the set of logs it came from because um, that's fundamentally impossible and that's very important. Yeah. Um, that this movement of low to high entropy always gives a certain order and always gives an irreversible arrow of time. And that arrow of time is actually one that, um, you know, the, the physical universe itself relies upon in a sense. Yeah. <laughs> why, why galaxies uh, form the way they do, while, why, while, why planets uh, co coalesce out of the dust and stay stable um, until something big hits them, like the sun exploding. And, and, why, um, and then how living systems have developed a, um, a further way of taking that kind of stability and adding a layer of complexity to it by which they could export entropy and, and, um, um, and uh, create their own kind of internal um, uh, past and way of handling the past in predicting the future. Hmm. The past, initially for any living system, is its own physical structure that holds together in such a way that it continues to live. The past? The past. In, in a sense, you could think of a, a, a living system, a very simple one, let's say, let's say a virus. Yeah. The fact that it still holds together as a virus means that it has a structure of relationships that, that um, have a past. Ah. But there's nothing in the real future that interacts with that present. But living systems quickly found that there's an event, or, or part of the essential part of living systems, is that they predict the future in a sense. They, they, they have in their or, essential organization a way of, of um, uh, in a way, modeling. It's not, that's not the best term, especially at these lower levels, but the fact that, that in order to continue and they are able to do things with, with low entropy, they are able to create their own future in a way that anticipates it, in a way. Hmm. And as nervous systems develop, this anticipation becomes much more sophisticated. Yeah. And then, as social, and then the social uh, dimension adds even more sophistication, another level of emergence. And as we talked before, the, the human conversation adds yet another level of emergence and add that to social uh, culture and things like that. And what you have is layer upon layer of very um, complex self-referential self-organization, each of which uh, is a solution to this thermodynamic problem um, of, of uh, dissipating entropy 
but one in which solving the problem gives a, a more and more ability to predict the future, uh, make use of the past, yeah. and do so in a way that gives us a sense of the species present, as Mead has discussed. Wow. Um, so, wow. <laughs> so, this, uh, so some of the... So, what Vervelli talks about that, um, and I think... Um, you know that inter that that also I, we had talked. You could we could connect this to what we discussed before about Markov blankets and yeah. and um, uh, statistical and probability dynamics and all that. But we don't need to get into that. One one interesting other aspect, though, that Ravelli gets into is what what's happening at the quantum level. So we we've once you have. Uh, you know, electrons emerging and atoms and mackerel, anything that then becomes uh, connected into macro phenomena, the ones that we can actually measure, then we're talking about these dynamics of thermal, these thermal dynamics, and that time then is something that, in a sense, the blurring of all those micro dynamics in which... Um, Time is really the expression of this relatedness at any point at which you which you look. But when you get below the atom into these quantum mechanics, um, the the even back in Mead's time, the quantum theorists were were wondering. It seemed that there was a more fundamental indeterminacy in which time, even time. The time in Einstein's relativity sense didn't quite make sense. It wasn't clear that there is time below this quantum level in the same way that that we think. So, hmm. so, um, but Rovelli is among the physicists who are at least making that connection to thermodynamics and then what goes on beneath quantum in a way that seems to be fundamentally related. Um, he doesn't have, he doesn't go into, I, I don't think physics ha, physics have all the answers to this. It has to do with, uh, he works a lot on quantum gravity, and um, and uh, he didn't go too much into it in this book, but um, that's mixed in there somewhere and has to do with time and some other fundamental forces. Um, and, uh, but um, what we, what we, experience at the point of measuring, I'll just say one, one, one idea that I think I understand what he's trying to say. At, at when things become, one of, one of the issues with quantum physics is that there seems to be this cloud of it, like when an electron emerges, there seems to be a cloud of indeterminacy of whether the thing, where the thing will be in space and how fast it's going. Um, and in the fundamental way, you, you can't measure, you can measure as soon as you measure where a thing is and how fast it's going, it's collapsed into this one space. But until that point of measurement, it seems as though it could be anywhere uh, within a, within its quantum field. Um, and so you get the sense of a thing being both, both like a particle and a wave, in which the wave is more like a cloud of indeterminacy and the particle is what collapses, but how does it collapse? And there's lots of theories about that. <laughs> oh, we need a universal observer like God's mind, or we need a multiverse. 
in order to explain this. And, and Ravelli at least doesn't resort to there being a multiverse. Um, but, and he doesn't explain all of it, but I think what, what I like is, is that there is something in this collapsing moment that connects to thermodynamics in a way that, that uh, I think what he's trying to say is basically it's this external macro scale interaction that matters for what happens at this quantum level. So that's the fact of this macro domain of time in interaction is what matters for how this more timeless, spaceless realm of the subatomic actually coalesces into something real. Um, and it's kind of hard to express that, but it's, it, I kind of like the idea. It's not, um, I guess one more con context without extending too far is I talked in several episodes back, I forgot the number, about uh, um, David Bohm and his, yeah. and his theory of quantum mechanics, which I still like. It's called um, pilot wave theory. He, he kind of has this sense of uh, electron emerging from a probability wave or probability domain in which the, that probability domain isn't like all possible universes, but it's, a, it's something there that needs um, what is often called a hidden variable in order to collapse into something that's real and solid, like an electron. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I like the idea that what Rebelli is talking about, this macro scale thing, is actually what is the interaction that's, that's creating this, this variable that is collapsing uh, what Bohm calls the, the, this hidden probability field into the single thing. But what's interesting about Bohm is that what's behind this timeless space is actually a unity, a holographic single nature in which, um, in which uh, it's almost like in, there's another scene in this I Heart Huckabee's movie that I started the episode with where Dustin Hoffman has his blanket and it's a single blanket and everything is within the blanket. Uh. <laughs> uh, but, but you have to re realize that there's a singular holographic nature to, to everything, uh, but it's this interaction with the particulars that create particulars uh. in our experience of space and time. But what Ravelli says is that we live in just a corner of that universe, and maybe there's other aspects of the universe that don't have time and don't have space. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and that's where in those earlier podcasts I took off into some interesting esoterics, which I'll, I'll close with. Okay. <laughs> uh, because uh, if it, it'd be fun to speculate then, what would it be like for very advanced civilizations to fool around with um, space and time in the way we described it. Now, I like to think, for reasons I won't get into, that it's impossible, that time travel is impossible. And I, Ravelli, interestingly, doesn't make a statement about this, but I think that um, for, him, for him it's very clear that there's no, there's no future that can we can get to and come back from. Exactly. Now, in, in Einstein's theory, if you were in a fast spaceship, you were actually moving slower than, than people on the ground. So in a yeah. way, you, if you're moving faster, you're, you're going through time faster than people on the ground. And yet, 
at no time are you going ahead of people on the ground to be able to come back and say, hey, everyone go and yeah. buy Apple stock because it's going to go up. <laughs> <laughs> That's impossible. Um, so given that, you could still, though, have, have a very advanced civilizations who maybe get to that singularity point where they built these quantum computers and, and the quantum computers are such that they can basically upload their brains into them and exist in, in this computational simulated world. Mm-hmm. At that point, um, they could be very, maybe very close to this threshold of, of time and timelessness and, and make more of that. But then they'd have these immense problems of trying to figure out who's going faster and who's going slower. Like yeah. You could live faster, but then maybe you're coming up with a community that's going slower and so it becomes very complicated. In <laughs> oh another podcast, I I, uh, I talked about how that have to be like prediction engines built into the very fabric of space to make yeah. that work. But um, but maybe there's even a, yet another layer, this, this sub quantum layer, where there isn't really time, but there are these complex uh, relations of dimension. Can mind exist there? Does mind exist there? Is there life? Um, and, and is there something in this fundamental ordering, um, which is, isn't quite fixed space-time, and yet becomes a, a place where perhaps other sorts of minds can live? And then we, and when you start hearing about um, other dimensions and, and things of that sort, then you start to wonder. And of course, my big question is, where is it that we live? <laughs> Where is it that we live after we die? <laughs> well, I, <laughs> that could be another whole podcast episode. But um, I want to point out that one of the dimensions of this episode is how you're thinking. And using the material that's available, um, ex- that you can look at and, and and in a moment, in an instant, make me understand what you said and anticipate what you might say next. So while we're going through this is in a conversation, I'm thinking, listening, trying to make pictures in my head of what you what you're saying, particularly that part about subquantum being there, time travel, but it's instantaneous. You know, I hear a word and I felt myself working with it, using it. <laughs> I don't know what that is, but I felt it. <laughs> yeah, maybe it would be quite a Zen mind to be able to, to, to experience that. Uh, yeah, taking yourself outside of that flow of time while yeah. you're still doing it. But, yeah. Um, maybe well, I, I can't claim that. <laughs> but I, I, I can tell you that, uh, you know, there's a thing that we call active listening that's been published a lot and taught. People think, well, I can teach, teach active listening. But I think there's a whole different way of looking at active listening. <laughs> it, it's not listening. It's, it's just presence in a way, and uh, an awareness of time and space yeah. and other, all happening. But with you explaining it and parsing it out, that maybe in my head I was starting to pull a few things apart and saying, oh, this is what I'm doing right now, and this is who I am, and this is a table, all of that. Mm-hmm.
I don't know. What's what's the what's the payoff statement that we can end this conversation? Well, with? I suppose we should come back to practice. <laughs> yeah, because uh, that's what this podcast is supposed to be about. So it I is think, the practice podcast. Yeah. So I think we could, I think this is a good um, way of you know, again framing what it is. What is practice as the unspoken, as the thing that's been learned, but that takes this. Um, you know, that, that manifests in action and is usually something that's more like it occurs in a flow where we don't have to think about it too much. Um, we don't have to discuss it too much. Um, it just is there, ready to go. Mm -hmm. But um, in a way, it, it's, it has its own time and space. But then to actually turn it into something that's interactive, like a learning where you have to teach someone else to practice. Yeah. It's almost like uh, slogging through time. You had to like go back into the from the flow into the real time in which you're you're slogging through and giving words to everything and trying to turn yeah. it back into something which in itself is more like it's 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 flowing in its own time and space when yeah. you're actually doing it. So yeah, wow, very good indeed. All right. Well, I'll I'll, I'll leave with. Uh, Scene from Dustin, where Dustin Hoffman explains in time and space. This is from I Heart Huckabees from 2004. It's part of my investigation. Yes, say this blanket represents all the matter and energy in the universe, okay? You, me, everything. Nothing's been left out, right? All particles, everything. What's inside this blanket? More blankets, that's the point. Blankets, everything. Exactly, this is everything, okay? Let's just say that this is me, right? And I'm 60 odd years old, I'm wearing a gray suit, blah, blah, blah. And let's say over here, this is you, and you're, I don't know, you're 21, you've got dark hair, etc. And over here, this is uh, Vivian, my wife and colleague. And then over here, this is the Eiffel Tower, right? It's Paris. And this is a war. And this is a, a, a museum. And this is a disease. And this is an orgasm. And this is a hammer. Everything is the same, even if it's different. Exactly. Our everyday mind forgets this. We think everything is separate, limited. I'm over here, you're over there, which is true. But it's not the whole truth, because we're all connected. Because we are connected. Sure, 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 sure. Okay. Yeah. All right, now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my Lord. Uh, well, this has been very enlightening and fun. And I'm looking forward to more of your thoughts. Thank you for listening to the Practice Podcast, conversations probing the nature of practice. If you'd like to hear more, go to Automatic, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or YouTube. And please consider purchasing our book on practice as a way of being at mylibrary.world. It's a digital book with lots of features that you do not see in a conventional book. So once again, thank you, and I look forward to you listening again. Our webpage at inactionresearch.info.